Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. We're in Isaiah chapter 30. We're going to continue with verse 6. A pronouncement concerning the animals of the Negev. Through a land of trouble and distress, of lioness and lion, of viper and flying serpent, they carry their wealth on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who will not help them. Right, this imagery of people bringing treasures, it's, it's like they're paying tribute to Egypt. They're packing their camels down with things that they can bring because they're trying to curry favor with Egypt. They're trying to save themselves from an incurring invasion. It didn't work for Israel, their sister nation. It's not going to work for them now. And so Isaiah is going to speak to the futility of this endeavor. Egypt's help is completely worthless. Therefore, I call her Rahab who just sits. Rahab who just sits. Okay, what's up with this? Why is Isaiah ragging on Rahab? Rahab in Canaanite mythology is actually the original namesake for our beloved Rahab, the former prostitute turned co uh, cooperative with the Israeli spies in Jericho and also part of the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 and part of the genealogical line of Jesus himself. She was actually named after this, and it's a figure that's similar to the Leviathan that we saw earlier in uh, in Isaiah and in, in this past week's curriculum, and that you also would see in Job. So it is Rahab who just sits. That is that is an insult, but it's not to knock on Rahab as we know her. It's to knock on the serpentine symbol of chaos. Uh, who is the namesake originally for Rahab. There's something really cool and redemptive in that, that her name is Rahab and it has pagan ties. But today we know her mostly as uh, and one of the ancestors to Jesus himself. Go now, write it on a tablet in their presence and inscribe it on a scroll. It will be for the future forever and ever. He's right. We're reading it right now. They are a rebellious people, deceptive children, children who do not want to listen to the Lord's instruction. Have you ever just not wanted to listen to God? When I was a, when I was a youth pastor, uh, there was a guy who, who once said, like, uh, Valentine's Day was coming up, and he did not want to come to church. He said, Jesse, I don't want to come, and I'll be honest, it's because I know you're going to talk about purity, and I'm struggling with that right now. I'm looking at pornography, and I'm messing around with my girlfriend, and I just don't want to feel convicted about it, so I'm just not going to come to church. All right? And I was like, okay, yeah, I can't force you, and if I could, I wouldn't, but you and I both know that it's not going to work out when you go against God's plan, right? You know that you're better off repentant. You're, you know, the fact that you think you shouldn't come to church is a greater reason to come to church. It's like patently, obviously, looking at the check engine light on the spiritual dashboard saying, my flesh does not want to come to church. That's because my flesh knows going to church is going to slay the sin in my life, and I would rather keep sinning. <laughs> Dangerous territory. You sin twice when you make accommodations to gratify the flesh. You make plans to gratify the flesh, and then you even avoid means by which you would repent. You don't want to hear the Lord's instruction. Watch out. It's a dangerous place to be. They say to the seers, do not see, and the prophets do not prophesy the truth to us. Tell us flattering things. Prophesy illusions. This is, this is also foreshadowing of what Paul would write in 2 Timothy chapter 4, saying that even in the New Testament, people do this. They don't want true teaching. 
They don't want to hear what the Lord says. They want to hear what they want to hear. The imagery that's used in 2 Timothy chapter 4 is those who they have itchy ears, and so they find someone who will scratch that itch. Tell me that God's okay with my white lies that I tell from time to time. Tell me that God's okay with my sin. Tell me that God's okay with the way that I speak to my my wife or my kids rudely. Tell me that God's okay with this. Tell me that God's okay with my sexual sin. Tell me that God's okay with my fraudulent business practices. Tell me that God's okay with fill in the blank, and then then I'll be down with it. But here's what's futile, all right? If you pay me to say something to you that you know you wanted said, you know that I'm just a dancing puppet for you, right? You know that I'm the one who told this to you. You might as well say it into a tape recorder and then hit play because you know, you know that it's meaningless. And yet for some reason, there's a huge market for this kind of teaching. There's a huge demand and there are entire denominations built upon this. This business model actually does seem to work, but the scariest words in all the Bible are reserved not for people who struggle with sin, but for false teachers. Prophesy illusions. Think about the irony of those two words together. Prophesy stuff that we know isn't true because it just makes us feel better. Just give me empty words of comfort. Have you ever been guilty of this as well? Verse 11, get out of the way, leave the pathway, rid us of the Holy One of Israel. This is what they say to the prophet of God. They want to align with Egypt. They don't want to hear Isaiah tell them the truth about God's coming judgment on Egypt. There's also beautiful words of hope for a revival in Egypt and Assyria, and even an alignment between the two, with Israel serving as the bridge, with Judah serving as the the land bridge between the two. But right now, they just want Egypt's protection, and they don't want to hear the dissident voice. Verse 12, Therefore the Holy One of Israel says, Because you have rejected this message and have trusted in oppression and deceit and have depended on them, this iniquity of yours will be like a crumbling gap, a bulge in a high wall, whose collapse will come in an instant suddenly. Its collapse will be like the shattering of a potter's jar, crushed to pieces, so that not even a fragment of pottery will be found among its shattered remains. No fragment large enough to take fire from a hearth or scoop water from a cistern. So this is the bad news about hiring yes-men to just say what you want them to say. You've already decided on a plan of action. You're going to align with Egypt. You don't want to hear the prophet of God get in your way. You even tell him to get out of the way. You want other people to come and prophesy illusions and just affirm what you already have in your head. Here's the thing. It's not going to work out for you. And it might even look okay for a while, but there's going to be evidence of faultiness in the wall, a crumbling gap, a bulge in a high wall. And when it collapses, it will collapse suddenly. And so you may be under the delusion of a fake peace. Think about the Antichrist, the first of the four horsemen. We often forget that. When we think about the horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, the first one is actually going to be like, yay, horsey. It's gonna, he's going to be on a white horse, and he's going to be carrying a bow with no arrows, and he's got an olive branch, and so it looks like peace. But it's a false peace, and it quickly gives way to the second horse of the four horsemen. That false sense of peace is a dangerous place to be. It's also futile because you know what's going to go down. And when it goes down, it goes down very suddenly. 
verse 15, for the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, you will be delivered by returning and resting. Your strength will lie in quiet confidence. Man, this is profound, isn't it? The Lord, the Holy One of Israel, okay, in stark contrast with the wisdom of the day, all right, the, the, the urge of the people to just go along with Egypt, in contrast to that, the Holy One speaks. The voice of the dissident is the Holy One, God. The Holy One of Israel has said, you'll be delivered by returning and resting. Now, this would almost seem like bad advice. This would almost seem like inaction. It would almost seem like passivity. But to return to God carried with it certain actions. We saw this in yesterday's, or, or last week's curriculum text, that they had some Asherah poles to tear down. They had some false altars that they were told to crush down to chalk. It wasn't enough just to take a sledgehammer to the stone and break it in two, or even into quartiles. It was enough, you had to continually bash it until it became chalk, okay? Have you ever repented from sin? Sort of. Have you ever like gotten sin out of your life for the most part? You know, have you ever like kind of gotten rid of the sin that's in your life? Did you leave the door cracked to it? No, what Israel was told to do was to smash their idols until the stone became chalk. So returning actually did take some work. And then resting, this is where it's counterintuitive. This can be incredibly hard because resting seems like an invitation on the Sabbath. They just kick back and do nothing and let God fight your battle for you. It sounds nice and it actually is easier, but what makes it difficult is waiting. Returning to God means getting rid of sin in your life that could be precious to you. Resting means waiting on Him, waiting on the Lord. This is the only way that we learn patience. We have to wait. There's no, there's no patience vaccine. There's no patience injection. There's no patience pill. We're not plugged into the matrix and there's no program whereby we can download patience instantly, the way that Keanu Reeves downloaded Kung Fu instantly. Instead, this is what we have. He's calling on his people to return and rest. Your strength will lie in quiet confidence. It paints the picture of a different Judah. Right now they're busy, busy, go, go, do, 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 all right? We're not, we don't have time to consult with the Lord. We don't want to hear from God's prophet. We, we need to align our own stratagems and things like this. And when we do that, oftentimes what we end up spelling out is a story whereby we come out looking like the victors in the end. Even if it works, it's bad for us because it causes us to trust in our own strength rather than God's. And we can go away telling, uh, touting our own victories and, 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 and lauding ourselves as strategists. And has it ever occurred to you that especially as a Christian, God will sabotage you in this for your own good. He will write the story in such a way that he alone gets the glory for it. Your job is to return to him, repent from sin, and rest in the Lord. When you do this, and your trust is in the Lord, and you know that He will vindicate you, that He will lift you up when the time is right. You will emerge on the other side of this, sanctified with patience, and He will get all of the glory for it. As a church plant, we're currently in a situation kind of like this. 
right? Right now, the uh, the housing market, the, the the especially the commercial real estate market in Seattle is going ice cold. We continue to save and save and save and save. So as our savings goes up and up and up and the market goes down and down and down and down, we're getting in a better position by the day. But I'm like, if, if you're like me, you're still looking at properties, you're kind of hoping, all right, Lord, please come through for us. All right, the uh, the local real estate company that has the market sort of cornered on church properties is tired of getting texts and calls from me. But we know that in the meantime, the Lord is working this out. The story cannot go, we were just brilliant strategists. The story has to go, the Lord did all of this. The Lord is the one who came through. And so we rest and we wait and we have quiet confidence. Now apply this on the individual level. If you are the lone dissident voice in the boardroom and you have this quiet confidence you know that what you believe and what you adhere to is what God has said, and it makes you the, the outlier, the rogue voice. You can speak in that voice with a quiet confidence. It's not an arrogance because it's not your authority anyway with which you're speaking. This confidence is quiet because it is as good as God himself, and it's not something that you procured for your superior intellect and more rigorous study. But you are not willing. This is what they're invited into, to return to God and to rest in this quiet confidence, but they're not willing. Do you remember what Jesus said about Jerusalem? He wished to gather them to himself like a mother hen, but they were not willing. You say, no, in verse 16, we will escape on horses. Therefore, you will escape and will ride on fast horses, but those who pursue you will be faster. All right, see this? It says, you will escape. Right? It'll seem to work at first, but you'll be pursued by people who are faster than you. 1,000 will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will flee until you remain like a solitary pole on a mountaintop or a banner on a hill. It's not going to work out if you trust in your own strength and your own preparation. And if you're the hero of your own life story, then guess what? You're all alone. A.W. Tozer in The Pursuit of God describes it this way, the one who trusts in himself in a time of need will have himself to look to, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have nothing short of the Lord on his side in a time of need. I'm Jesse. I'll see you tomorrow for another devotion.